Welcome to Working Gratitude, real people, real gratitude at work, with your host, Darren Hollingsworth, Chief Gratitude and Accountability Officer at Odonata Coaching and Consulting. The Working Gratitude podcast was launched in 2012 to stimulate dialogue and conversation about research-based best practices of gratitude in the workplace and ways that gratefulness is expressed via philanthropy. These brief interviews with successful leaders from a variety of professional environments will encourage and inspire you and give you ideas about how you can start working gratitude. Thank you for listening to Working Gratitude. Now here's your host, Darren Hollingsworth. Thank you for joining us today. This is the second of a two-part series of Working Gratitude with Dr. Paul White. Last week, we talked about what he was grateful for and our traditional Working Gratitude questions and how his team expressed their gratitude in the community. This week, we depart a little bit from our standard format to get a closer look at Dr. White's three books that have influenced my life and work and were so such deep influences over the last 10 years to helping me bring this conversation of working gratitude to individuals and organizations. The, the trilogy of books that we've talked about are The Five Languages of Appreciation at Work, Rising Above the Toxic Workplace, and uh, The Vibrant Workplace. So if you were able to listen last week, uh, you heard a lot of, of his background, but I want to share for those of you who couldn't join us before a little bit about Dr. White. He is the co-author of The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, along with Dr. Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages. For the past 20 years, Dr. White has improved numerous businesses and nonprofit organizations, schools, and medical facilities by helping them with a variety of tasks like decreasing cynicism, creating positive workplace relationships, reducing frustration levels for managers and supervisors, raising job satisfaction, and increasing engagement, attendance, and productivity. His list of clients are, is, a, is a wonderful uh, roll call of recognizable organizations, including Microsoft, NASA, L'Oreal, MGM Resorts, the Million Dollar Roundtable, Miller Coors, the Salvation Army, numerous hospitals, as I said before, schools and government agencies. And th- there's such an alignment for me because of my work with nonprofit organizations that seeing that thread through all the books has really been meaningful to me. Today, we're going to focus mostly on the vibrant workplace, overcoming the obstacles to building a culture of appreciation, uh, which is his most recent book. You can find his work in many other places, including Bloomberg's Business Week, CNN and Fortune, uh, Entrepreneur.com, Fast Company, Huffington Post, and a number of other online uh, news outlets. Dr. White, thank you again for joining me last week, and thank you for letting us take a closer look at the vibrant workplace today. You bet. I'm glad to to be here and chat with you, Darren. So uh, I have said that for me, this is a wonderful conversation of shifting from toxic to vibrant via appreciation because the three books have gone together so wonderfully for me. Briefly, because some of our listeners may be new to this conversation, could you give that brief insight about the evolution of the three books that brought you to Vibrant? Yeah, so uh, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, and figure out how to apply those concepts to 
work-based relationships, and that's where we came up with uh, the concepts related to the five languages of appreciation in the workplace that um, includes uh, an online assessment that comes with the book and as well as training materials for um, either internal HR professionals or uh, external coaches and have um, used that with, uh, I guess, literally thousands of organizations. We're in 26 countries and I know 400,000 people have read the book. Uh, really, they bought it. I don't know what they read. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, as we're speaking about positive kinds of things, people would come up and at uh, breaks and afterwards and tell me stories about what a negative workplace they had or what a jerk the boss was. And so I wound up doing research. We have about 90,000 people on our newsletter list, so we will do polls and so forth and did research and uh, found out and then wrote about rising above a toxic workplace and Really, the goal is to help people understand uh, the nature of a toxic workplace, what you need to do to protect yourself, and also um, how to uh, to make a difference. I mean, we're not really into helping people just you know live in a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. And then the vibrant workplace came about from our work over the years of uh, helping organizations apply the concepts of authentic appreciation and and just the common obstacles that uh, are encountered. And so it's it's really uh, organized around the 10 most common obstacles uh, that we found and, and how do you get past those. Well, great. That does give a concise uh, introduction to all three books. And I want to talk with you about uh, about Vibrant and being vibrant in the workplace and bringing that to leaders. So thank you again for joining me about, uh, to continue this conversation. I loved the definition and the question that you pose in the introduction. The Definition of vibrant, you say, is full of energy and enthusiasm, spirited, lively, energetic, full of life. And then you ask the question, can this really happen in the workplace? Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about your inquiry there? And you, you introduced it from the experience with toxic workplace. But can you expand on that a little bit for us, the definition of vibrant and Bringing sure. that I, to I the mean, workplace. I think, you know, what happens is, you know, you hear about this in, and uh, psychologists and other, I don't know, counselors and so forth, sometimes can be a little bit Pollyannish and almost sort of snake oil salesmen say, you know, here, here's the answer to life kind of thing. And, and the reality is, I mean, life is tough, work is tough, uh, and uh, and we have to acknowledge that. But in spite of that, there's still really... Uh, the opportunity and actually uh, existing vibrant workplaces. Uh, I mean, I would say, I don't know that I had worked in one previously. I don't, maybe ours is currently, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I, I have been able to see and experience and work alongside some that, you know, they treat their employees well, their customers, their vendors, they uh, are mission focused and it's not just about having fun and, you know, or making money or whatever. It's about serving your clients and customers and being successful in doing so and having the right combination of so lots of times if it is uh, the right time and the right place uh, for the opportunity to be able to take advantage of uh, needs that you can serve and then build a healthy process and team around that so that uh, it, it's really uh, uh, an enjoyable you know, ride along the way for at least a period of time. And usually, you know, it's not going to stay forever, but uh, it, it can for quite a while. You know, I talk to clients a lot, particularly my individual coaching clients, 
who frequently are nonprofit executives, that uh, we work so much of our lives just by nature and by uh, nurture, if you will, that, that we've been trained to work so much. And, and I lead conversations with what are you grateful for at work, much like this working gratitude conversation. And I know like you can't always have a perfect work environment or I think you say a utopian work environment and it may not be vibrant or you may not be grateful all the time, but it's, it's work like yours that is bringing the attention that to the fact that it can happen and it can happen methodically. Let's give our listeners a perspective uh, that you talk about well in like in chapter four about negativity and just giving that definition of from your experience in the research of toxic workplace. Can you kind of talk about what is negative and toxic and what is just sometimes work related stress? Yeah, you you know, what's interesting, uh, I just did a training for the leadership at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta on the vibrant workplace. And we pulled out three chapters that we focused on, and one of them was negativity. And it's amazing to me the number of behaviors that we can come up with that sort of reflect negativity in the workplace. I mean, whether that's grumbling and complaining, blaming, sarcasm, condescension, you know, gossiping, resistance, distrust, uh, undermining, um, you know, even aggression, uh, rolling your eyes, ignoring the rules, walking away in a conversation. And unfortunately, there's sort of a lot of variations uh, of what negativity can look like. And, and, you know, I think there are some people either from a personality style point of view or maybe stage of life point of view where they're pretty negative about life and that, you know, they can pretty much turn everything uh, from whether it's positive or neutral into uh, a negative perspective. And the problem is, I mean, there's some issues uh, around that that are reality-based that, you know, we have problems and we have to do some problem-solving. Uh, but there still has to be an element of hope, right? Um, and actually, we know that hopelessness is sort of the key factor to depression, that you feel like it's not ever going to get any better. And so we want to help turn that. And one of the cool things that I've learned along the way about negativity is that, uh, you know, people will often ask me, they, they always want me to net it out. Okay, Paul, what do you, you know, how do you really do this? Well, really there's two things to improve a negative workplace. One is don't contribute to the negativity, right? Don't add on your own cutting remarks or other examples of, you know, what an it perceived idiot this person is or how bad the management is. Just don't add to it. I mean, you don't have to call out people, but just say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll catch you guys later. And then secondly is to turn uh, the the conversation to something positive. It doesn't have to be about that topic. It doesn't have to be about appreciating a colleague. It could be, man, I'm thankful, you know, I work in air conditioning now given the heat, you know, I, yeah. versus, or, you know, if it's wintertime, you know, not being outside. And so, uh, it's sort of like a positive comment is like throwing water on a, a smoldering fire, and it just sort of knocks it out, uh, at least for a while. Now, you can rebuild it if intentionally if people want to, but this is the combination of not adding fuel to the fire and then, you know, uh, turning the attention and focus to something positive uh, can make a huge difference, especially 
done over time and multiple people doing it over time. That's what I love about what you bring to light in both books, I think, about the individual contributor's ability to make an impact in this conversation. It, it needs to be leadership embraced and ideologically uh, uh, informed from leadership, but just a water cooler talk like you just described, excusing yourself from a negative conversation or working to infuse something to shift the conversation can really make a, a difference and make an impact, uh, particularly over time. So one of the biggest points of negativity that I've seen in lots of organizations you talk about uh, in chapter five of the book, and that's busyness. And I've seen some memes lately about the trophy of busyness. Oh, I'm so busy. And can you, can you give a little synopsis of that chapter for us and how you all have addressed that to shift from busyness to vibrant? Yeah, I think. In fact, I, I I think busyness has become our cultural addiction. Mm. Um, mm, cultural and, addiction. And like tying in a key aspect of sort of my perspective on things is that while we talk about the workplace, you know, uh, we are our colleagues, our employees, are people first, mm. and then we're employees and we're people before, during, and after being employees. And lots of times when we talk about workplace issues, we forget that we all have lives outside of work. And I think busyness is a huge example of that, that not only are we busy at work, but people's lives are just crazy, you know, and I have uh, had an experience with team members that, you know, they leave on Friday, you know, afternoon, and then they are just going until late Sunday night, and they come in exhausted. Um, and I think we have to pay attention to that. And so busyness, it's interesting um, in the training we do, you know, the question is, is busyness really a behavior? Is it an attitude? Is it a perspective? Um, I, I think it's all of those, right? Um, and and it's essentially the sense that you have more to do than you think you have time or energy to do. And um, it can be driven by a lot of things. It can be driven externally by, you know, demands from the workplace. But lots of times we bring it on ourselves where we want to look good or competent and, uh, and or we're trying to be efficient and so getting as much done as we can and, you know, sort of a, a sense of wanting to be needed and important. Well, if you're busy, you know, you have a sense of that. Um, uh, for some people, busyness is driven by perfectionism and, and a lack of willingness to um, delegate or trust others. And so you just keep piling on yourself. And uh, at some point we have to, to look at, there's a great book that uh, it's been out a while. It's called Margin by Dr. Richard Richard Swinson, that just talks about the need to build margin in our lives, whether that's financially, when, so if your car you know breaks down, you got money to get it fixed, or time, versus you know just packing everything so tight that there's no room for something that uh, not to run you know super efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think a question that that I've come up with, I think it's important to ask ourselves as we make decisions about how we approach work or how we approach life is well, what's going to be good for my personal well-being and the relationships that are important to me because work is about work getting things done but uh, life is more than that and you know at some point when you're younger and sort of you know healthy and got a lot of energy you, you, you just you a lot of times there's sort of the american individualism but there's some point in life, whether it's the birth of a child, we had twin sons 
away from family and man, you know, it was brutal and we needed other people. We needed support and, or whether that's a health issue or something else. And, and so having healthy relationships to help you through the challenges of work or personally is really important. And we've got to sort of deal with that um, and think about it. I totally agree. I, I work with clients on a blended life ideology. Some people talk about it as an integrated life, but I think my experience has shown that the idea of work-life balance has a lot of, even if it's in just the word balance, you just cannot balance the number of hours in a day that you work with the number of hours that you do anything else, including sleep. And so I like the idea of a blended life, you know, busyness, particularly with electronic connectedness comes up an awful lot. And I think I've been given some insight into people's perspective of that, of when emails are sent and why some people leave at four o'clock and get back online at eight o'clock because they're at their kid's soccer game. And then they choose to be online at eight o'clock. But that doesn't mean you have to choose to respond at eight o'clock and, and setting up that culture, I think. And we've got a lot of work to do uh, in people's individual ownership of their busyness. There's two more things I want to try to cover in our time together. And, and the first one is really important to me because of some experience and observations in different organizations. In other conversations, you and I have talked about nonprofit organizations and, and the fact that compensation can't always be high. Let's discuss the difference between appreciation and recognition and kind of in that give us the continuum of compensation, reward, recognition, and appreciation. Can you walk our listeners through that in a quick summary? Sure. Um, you know, re employee recognition programs are, are uh, proliferate in uh, the American and, and Western European cultures at work, um, and they largely uh, don't work in the sense of helping individuals feel valued. Uh, that they weren't designed to do that, and so I think it's unfair to ask them to do that, but people try to use that anyway. Um, and recognition is largely uh, about performance, right? I mean, um, that we, you know, recognize and reward people for doing uh, a good job or reaching certain goals and so forth. And that's good. Um, and when they're designed and implemented well and consistently, they can be effective in helping maintain and even grow in behaviors that you want to see happen among your team members. The problem is, is that uh, we are more than work units and we're more than producers. And as I stated earlier, we're people. And so we have lives. We are a person uh, at work and outside of work. And if we solely focus on performance, people at some point, even high performers, begin to resent that they only get or hear good things when they've uh, met or exceeded goals. And the reality of life is that we're not always at our best. I mean, whether there's a, a health issue or, uh, you know, personal challenges with our kids or, you know, a family member or whatever, that, you know, we're not always at the top of their game and doesn't mean that we cease to have value. And the other problem is that most reward and recognition programs only touch the top 10 to 15% mm, of the workforce. Yes. Right. And so that leaves the sort of middle 50 to 60% of the rest of us who are, you know, good people trying hard, do a decent job, but we're not the stars. And if we're not recognized for performance, we don't hear anything. Well, we know that 79% of the people who leave a job voluntarily say that one of the main reasons they leave is not feeling valued and appreciated. So 
if we're just sort of leaving that out there for our our majority of our team members, we're we're at risk for you know having a high turnover. And so for us, appreciation really focuses on the person as well as performance because you can appreciate when somebody does something well. But you know, it's not always work related or even production related. I mean, I personally value working with cheerful people more than grumbly people, and right. so I can appreciate and value that even though it doesn't make them a better performer. Um, or there's sometimes when, you know, somebody's <clears throat> learning and growing and they're not your top performer, but you can still appreciate them for other things. Like if somebody's training for a half marathon and you say, man, you know, Dave, that is so cool that you've got the personal discipline to train for that. I'm just really impressed. Or a single mom who's raising her kids and you say, man, uh, Tanisha, I just am super impressed with how much you love and care for your kids and you're there for them. It's not about work. It's about her as a person and other roles in her life. And uh, is she going to appreciate that? I think so. Is it going to help create some, you know, positive relational energy and loyalty? I'm pretty sure. So uh, for us, it's not just about work and performance. It's about sort of the the bigger picture that we have value as people. I think you've hit a great point that circles back to that conversation we had earlier around individuals appreciating each other so that that as a colleague to someone, as a peer to someone, I can show them appreciation for something as simple as an email that I received or a a hello in the morning or a, the question, do you need it? I'm going to the cafeteria and can I help you out by bringing something? There's those, those simple acts sure. of kindness and appreciation at work. The last thing I want to quickly touch on, if we can, is the fact that your work, all three of these books, and particularly in Vibrant, you you address this very forthrightly with different sections, is that appreciation at work works in unique settings, whether it's staff who work remotely or in and around diversity and inclusion conversations. So can you uh, illuminate some of that uh, content for us. Sure. I, and one of the exciting things for me is just to see and hear uh, the different places that people have and are applying our concepts. So one of my favorite stories is uh, working with a mining company in South Dakota and Colorado that you know, it's a bunch of hard guy, tough guy, <laughs> kind of people, like tr- truck drivers, cement uh, uh, workers, uh, miners, and uh and they love our stuff. And and the reason that it works is, first of all, it, it's not just about going through the motions and sort of looking like you you know, appreciate something. We really focus on authenticity and communicating appreciation in the way that's meaningful to the recipient. So that doesn't only include the, the five languages, but different actions within the, the, the language. And that's our motivating by appreciation inventory helps identify the specific actions that each person wants, because not everybody wants time with their supervisor. I mean, uh, some people just, uh, you know, I want to go hang out and drink beer with my friends after work. I don't want to go meet with my supervisor. <laughs> right, right. And so we can identify that. And what's happened with these miners, I mean, they've, we have visual symbols for our languages and all that, and they've gotten stickers that they've gotten printed and put on them, and, and they're inviting me back. Uh, I met with them first time two years ago, and I'm going back here in a month to do sort of a follow-up um, to help them take it deeper. And uh, it's that kind of thing in in comparison to, you know, I was at a children's hospital in Orange County, and, and we're rolling it out there and with public schools, with long-term care facilities, 
government agencies were getting a lot more of that kind of stuff. A lot of hospitals and medical uh, facilities were used in the military. We, and in fact, we've developed different versions of our inventory for different settings, mm-hmm. government, military, medical, schools, remote workers, um, uh, because the actions look different in those. And so right. this last year we did research with remote employees and compared them to people who work in face-to-face settings and figured out, okay, how they want to be shown appreciation, same thing generationally, comparing younger workers versus older. So to me, the cool thing is that the principles seem to be pretty universal. Well, I mean, we're in 60 countries and books in 18 languages, but we're then able to tailor the specific actions to whether it's the culture or sort of the specific cultural setting of the workplace, uh, that's both fun and challenging, but that's where the work is, right? We've got to uh, make it meaningful for uh, each different workplace and, and team member. I think you've, you've, you've given some great resources uh, through these books, and I want our listeners to really enjoy exploring them and exploring the content that you have online through appreciation at work.com. And I really just have to express my appreciation to you uh, to say thank you for this body of work. And thank you for joining me last week on working gratitude and for joining me again to talk about your books more extensively. Yeah, my pleasure, Darren, and, and thank that's that's encouraging to me. My language is words of affirmation, so anything like that sort of, you know, jazzes me, and, uh, so I really value that. Thanks. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and talking with you more. And to our listeners, I thank you for listening. We will return to our standard working gratitude format, but I hope that you will engage with Dr. White online and certainly with me. You can reach me at info at workinggratitude.com. And if you haven't already, please Listen, like, subscribe, share, comment, and give us your feedback about what's working for you in Working Gratitude. Thank you for joining us. Darren Hollingsworth has had a thriving career as a financial advisor, sales professional, senior fundraising professional, and nonprofit executive. Now, via business, success, and philanthropy coaching, Darren is passionate about helping successful executives realize and exceed their personal and professional potential. He helps business and nonprofit leaders find and confirm their passion, their inspiration, and motivation. This is accomplished through collaborative work based on gratitude, experience, encouragement, and accountability. As Darren says, surviving is not enough. Thriving is the goal. Additionally, Darren works with businesses, nonprofit organizations, and boards of directors to create new possibilities for transformational customer and donor relationships, organizational strategic visioning and governance, as well as continuity and succession planning. Via collaboration and consulting, Darren engages with clients to empower them to build upon strengths and face challenges with confidence and expertise. To hear more Working Gratitude and for information about Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, visit our website, odonatacoaching.com, or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Odonata Coaching or search wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Working Gratitude. Working Gratitude, copyright Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, all rights reserved.